we're going to carry on in uh, Mark's gospel into chapter 2 this morning. Um, and straight away we're going to see Jesus healing a whole multitude of people. Let's just commit this time of study in our hearts and minds to the Lord, shall we? Father, we pray, Lord, that you remove Lord, any preconceived ideas, Lord, any notions of what we think you can or can't do. Um, Father, speak to us now through your word. Lord, reveal to us just the awesome greatness of who you are. Lord, the situations that we read about here in Mark's gospel, Lord, make them real to us. Lord, as if we were there, sat at your feet, listening to you speak to this multitude, seeing the things you were doing. Lord, that they would have an impact on us, that we would change the way we think. Lord, that tomorrow when we wake up for a new week, Lord, we would have... Lord, your greatness on our hearts and minds. Lord, all that you can do. And that, Father, you would just increase our love for you, our faith in you. And, Lord, just help us to be a witness through the things you reveal to us. Lord, we give you this time now. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this uh, area of healing. And we can see that Jesus is going to uh, heal every form of disease uh, in these uh, miracles. Uh, And, of course... What we're seeing as well is that the disease itself pictures various aspects of sin. Um, of course, sickness and disease is all as a result of sin. It all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Without the events of the Garden of Eden, there would be no sickness. There would be no suffering. Um, but because of the events that transpired there, because of Eve's rebellion against God and then Adam's willingness to join Eve in that position then sin has entered into the human race and because of that, death has come. Uh, And that necessitates then that our physical bodies uh, are subject to decay. Um, This is how things are. Of course, the the Word of God reveals that this is not how it will be for eternity because we have that fantastic chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us that God has something wonderful planned that we're going to get new bodies, new bodies that are not corruptible, that don't creak when we get out of bed in the morning, that, that don't ache all the time. you know. And, and then they're not going to be subject to all these diseases and sicknesses that we now see just all around the world, wherever you go. The, the world is riddled with so many problems, all as a result of this um, original problem that took place in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and yet again, as we're saying, each of these uh, sicknesses also point to sin. They just show the predicament of man's condition. You see, we've got uh, a a fever burning in the soul. Uh, We've got a leprosy polluting the whole being. See, there's a spiritual side to each of these things. We we looked last time a lot at the end of the session about leprosy and how it is indicative of sin in general, and it affects the whole being. Again, fever, we will see Jesus dealing with these things, uh, affecting our, our soul the way that sin does. You know, we see this individual uh, with the palsy, you know, making one utterly unable to take a step towards God. Well, isn't that the sin condition that we find ourselves in? We need grace. Uh, We see an individual with a withered hand, again, speaking of people incapable of true service. So each of these miracles, there's a practical element here, but there's also a spiritual undertone, just showing the human condition and how much we need a saviour. You see, again, whatever form sin may take, Jesus can give complete deliverance 
from it. And we'll see Mark trying to expound this as we go through this. And let me again remind you that Mark is uh, seemingly, uh, my, my take on this, and you can come to your own view if you want to, different scholars have different ideas. I think this was while Mark was with, with Peter in Babylon, uh, after the church had been dispersed, after the time of Acts uh, or the time of Pentecost, um, the church en- ends up being dispersed. And we know that Peter uh, went to Babylon and that there was a church thriving there at that time. Uh, Mark seemingly, well, Mark, from Peter's record, we know that Mark went there with him. Um, and it seems to be that Mark is sat at Peter's feet just asking him, so, so what happened then? And Peter just relaying these things. Now, Mark, again, we've already said, was in in and around these events. So some of them he may have been an eyewitness of himself. But certainly these early days, this would have been Peter's account of what was taking place. And so Mark, so excited as he's recording these things, and he's like, I've got to tell people about this. And so, you know, almost Mark saying to Peter, "Can can 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 I write this down? Can I share this with people? And that's what we have. It's Mark's gospel. But in a sense, it's Peter's account. And so we pick up chapter 1 of verse, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2. And again, we read, he entered into Capernaum. This is now seemingly where Jesus is staying for this, this period of time. And we read, and after some days, so there's a little bit of time, a few days have passed, it was noise that he was in the house. This seems to be Peter's house. This seems to be where Jesus were staying. I think this is quite interesting because Jesus didn't have his own dwelling, his own abode there. Yes, Jesus, we know, was brought up in Nazareth as a child and so on, but here he doesn't have a place of his own. He comes and calls Peter and John and these other disciples and wants to stay. Ask Peter effectively, can I stay at your place? Isn't that what Jesus does to us? Wants to come and dwell with us? You know, I wonder what Peter thought that first time when he was going home, when he went into the house. You know, Jesus is going to be staying here. This this rabbi, this teacher. And bear in mind, Peter wasn't probably fully sure who Jesus was. He just knew there was something incredible about this, this teacher, this rabbi. He's seen him do these incredible miracles. And Jesus says, Peter, can I, can I stay at your house? I wonder, you know, there's that lovely little um, kind of poem theme. You know, what if Jesus came to your house? I'm sure some of you have seen that. You know, what would you have to do? What would you have to hide or put away? You know, would you have to go through your DVD collection and put some of them in the cupboard out of the way or move some of the CDs you didn't want Jesus to see? You know, would you have any books or magazines or newspapers around that you have to kind of hide because you really would be a bit of, you know, you know, you know if somebody comes around to your house and they sit there and, oh, that's not mine, I borrowed it from, you know, it's not, it doesn't belong to me. But what was it like? I mean, but then think about your own life because Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in your life. It's just like this situation. Jesus comes to dwell with us. What a privilege. What a responsibility too. So Jesus now in Peter's house. And then another one of these straightaways. Again, 42 of these we find through Mark's account. Mark, so excited, just kind of revealing. And straight away, many were gathered together. So this crowd again is gathering. We've already had this, that that, that evening a few, back in chapter 1, a few days before this, 
A whole crowd had gathered around right into the evening, until late in the evening, and Jesus had gone out and he'd been healing those and setting them free that were bound by evil spirits and demons and so on. And now, the, the big thing that ended the previous chapter, if you remember, was that that leper had been healed. It had never been done in the history of Israel. There's been provision made, that we saw this, provision made in the law, and Jesus tells the leper to go and do that which was required by the law. But that would have necessitated this individual traveling down to Jerusalem to the temple to offer a sacrifice there. Can you imagine the stir as this individual comes to the priests in Jerusalem and says, I've come to offer a, a sacrifice. I've come to be checked out by the high priest. Uh, why have you come? Because I've been healed. Healed of what? Healed of leprosy. And I will step back a bit. Are you sure you're healed? <laughs> you know, and no doubt others would have been there, able to corroborate and to, to testify that this was the case. And the priests would have been absolutely, you know, they've never dealt with this before, so they'd have had to go back to the law and look, read, read through what they had to do in this situation. Could you imagine the stir that created in Jerusalem? We're going to see then a delegation now come back to Capernaum. So now, after a few days, we read again straight away, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. They couldn't even get into the doors. This crowd around the house. And he preached the word unto them. This is scripture. Jesus just speaking scripture to them. And they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born on four. So we've got four individuals Four friends of this this chap, unable to walk, no strength in his legs. And they come to the place, hoping, no doubt, because they've heard these accounts of what has taken place there. Some of them may have even been there in the you know a few days before this, hoping that Jesus might be able to do something for their friend. And we read in verse four, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, you have to think about the, the reality of what's going on here. These individuals arise. The idea is of this, this bed that he's laying on, it's not some nicely crafted stretcher. It's literally a loose, flimsy mattress. That's the idea in the Greek, according to what the commentators say. So, you know, you can imagine just somebody carrying somebody on a kind of a loose mattress, and it's, you know, um, trying to stop this chap falling off to do any more injury to him and they get to the house and they can't get in and so they're talking to each other saying what should we do and one of them has this bright idea saying i know let's climb up on the roof and we'll take the tiles off and we'll lay him drop him down and you can imagine the the poor chap laying on the bed going no guys please please don't do this this is not a good idea Don't, don't carry me up there but they do and somehow they managed to stop him falling off as they're getting this stretcher or this, this mattress that he's laying on up onto the rooftops. And then Peter sat there listening to Jesus speaking, thinking, this is wonderful. What a great day this is that Jesus is in my house teaching. And then he starts hearing this kind of knocking and this banging noise. And suddenly bits of plaster and things start falling down. This is Peter's house. And, and things start falling apart. And suddenly a bit of light appears in the ceiling. And Jesus carrying on teaching, and there's just still knocking and banging and bits coming out everywhere. And suddenly the tiles start coming off, and they see these people on the roof. 
don't know what does Peter do at this point? Does he does he get out? Does he run outside and tell him get down? Does, does he interrupt Jesus? Say, oh, I'm sorry, this has just gone too far. What happens when Jesus, within your life, allows something that you weren't expecting, something that upsets that upsets the status quo for you? What do you do? That's quite a challenge. I was thinking about this, you know, through this week that, you know, sometimes we, we have our preconceived idea and plan of what we want God to do and how we want God to do it. And as long as he does it that way, that's fine. But as we know, God doesn't tend to do it that way. God will often work in a way that we weren't expecting. And it's a challenge to us. And, and it challenges those things that we hold on to. I mean, it's right and proper that we look after the material things that we have. But do they become so important that they would actually stop us or prevent us from letting other people come to Christ? Because potentially that could have happened here. Peter could have immediately run outside and got these individuals off the, the top of the roof and, no, you, you can't do that, get down. Peter had the power here to step in and stop this individual coming to Christ. But he, he doesn't. We're not given the details of, of what Peter actually thought, and maybe that's a good thing. But for you, in your own life, do you let the comfort of your own life sometimes get in the way of people coming to Jesus? They obviously then manage to make enough of a hole in the roof. I mean, it's got to be some hole, isn't it? You think about this, to actually get a, a body through it, and they've got to somehow then attach the ropes and lay this individual down. And again, bearing this isn't a solid frame that this is individuals on. This is some kind of, you know, matches to me coming down almost like a like a wrap, you know, hoping this individual is not going to slide out one end or off the other side and, and lower down in front of Jesus. Notice what we read, verse five: When Jesus saw their faith, what what was he looking at? Was it? Faith that this individual could be healed? What was their expectation? You see, I, I think looking at the situation here, they had faith in Jesus. They didn't know whether Jesus would heal this individual. They just knew they had to do their part and bring this man to Jesus. And then it was all about Jesus. This is a great lesson in faith and trusting God in these situations. Because we pray. And we have a, a real situation, of course, with Linda at the moment. Will Jesus heal Linda? We don't know. Can he? Yes. Absolutely. Completely and totally. And any other one of us here that are suffering with any ailments or conditions... Can Jesus heal? Absolutely. And what these individuals do is have the faith to bring to Jesus, knowing that he is the one that can heal. They don't know at this stage whether he will or not. But they've got that confidence that if they at least bring this, this friend of theirs to Jesus, there's a chance that because of his grace, because of all the things they've seen that they've heard about him, that he will bring healing. So we read again, when Jesus saw their faith, 
And it's the friend, the friend's faith, not the individual. I mean, the individual may have even shouted and screaming, stop, let me off, take me out. Very uncomfortable about being lowered down. But he said unto the sick, so he turns his focus and gaze to this man now laying in front of him amidst this pool of rubble and tiles and, and so on. He says this, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's the first time in any of the gospel accounts we, we read this statement. And you and I kind of read that and we're familiar with it. We, we kind of know the gospel story. We know that Jesus came to be that payment in full, that propitiation for our sins, to pay for our sins. And we read, thy sins be forgiven thee. We go, fine, great, we understand that. This was groundbreaking roof-breaking, actually. But this was an incredible moment for somebody, a human being, to say to another human being, thy sins be forgiven thee. But of course, Jesus wasn't just a man. He was a man. But he was also God in the flesh. Now, verse 6, we read, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there. Now, these are those that would have come down from Jerusalem. They'd have heard this situation, this leper that had been up there, that had been healed by this rabbi called Jesus, somewhere around Capernaum, they make the journey down. No doubt trying to act in a sense as like spiritual police to check out what's going on, who gave you the authority to do these kind of things. I love the way that men question the authority. You know, if man ordains man, apparently that's all right, but when God ordains somebody, people will ask questions. There were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So they're already trying to figure out how this is happening, why this is happening. You know, they're looking for arguments that they can use against Jesus. They're already doubting. And this is in their hearts. This is what they're saying. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? And they make a profound statement because they say, who can forgive sins but God? Now, we're not told that they spoke to each other. This is individually, they seem to be thinking this thing. And you can understand in a sense from their perspective. And they go, but only God can forgive sins. This is a blasphemy. Well, they're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. So for these statements to be true, verse 5, where Jesus says, thy sins be forgiven thee, And in verse 7, where we're told that only God can forgive sins, the only way to reconcile that is to understand that Jesus is God. People that read the Gospels and say Jesus never claimed to be God, don't read it very closely because here, straight away, a bold statement, Jesus himself declaring himself to be God. And they see it as blasphemy. Notice, again, that Jesus saw their faith because of their actions. James makes a a big point throughout his epistle, but in James 2.20, he reminds us that faith without works is dead. can't just say we have faith. What are we doing to demonstrate that faith is genuine? These individuals clearly demonstrated their belief, so much so that they went to this extraordinary step of getting up onto the roof and lowering this individual down. Verse 8, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, 
didn't hear audibly. He just knew what they were thinking. And this wasn't a guess either. He didn't just have a, an inkling as to what they may have been saying or thinking. He knew straight away. So that they, re, that they so reasoned within themselves, again, looking for an argument, looking for some objection that they can put forward. He said unto them, and this must have absolutely freaked them out, why reason you these things in your hearts? I mean, you know what it's like when somebody looks at you and speaks to you, and occasionally these things happen, don't they? That somebody just kind of catches you off guard and says the right thing, and you try and deny it. I wasn't thinking that. I didn't, you know. You know what it's um, like in a in a relationship, and um, there's been a number of times when Joyce said to me, "You know what I'm thinking." And straight away I've come back with something, and occasionally I've got the right answer. And of course it's just a guess, but you know, normally it's something to do with chocolate. Um, but you know, we, it's one of those moments where, how did you know I was thinking that? And I always, well, I know you so well, my darling. Of course, when we do it as humans, it isn't just a guess, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And it would have taken them by surprise that he says, why are you thinking those things? And before they have a chance to respond... He says, whether, what, what is easier to say to this man, this sick of the palsy? To say, thy sins be forgiven thee? Or to say, arise and take up with a better walk? They put, he puts the question to them. You see, nobody can see the forgiveness of sins because it's a spiritual thing. Now, in one sense, you can observe the effect because people's countenance will change. But Jesus says, what is easy to say? Something that you can't see or something that you can actually see and, and demonstrate and bear witness to. Psalm 139 reminds us that God knows all the things that we're thinking. He knows when we rise up, when we sit down. He knows our thoughts are far off. And then Jesus adds, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Just to pause at that point because... That statement, that phrase that Jesus uses of himself, Son of Man, is a messianic title. And I'm sure that these Jewish leaders that have come down wouldn't have misunderstood him using this title. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth. Again, that title actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's used 14 times in Mark's gospel, 80 times in the gospels combined. Jesus uses this title of himself, this very messianic title, the Son of Man. Again, I'm sure they'd have picked up on that straight away. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, God, has power on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the sick of the palsy, so he now turns, he's speaking to them, then he turns to this this man laying in this heap of rubble and ruins on the floor. I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. What's lovely about this, and we don't get it in the English so much, but again from the, the commentaries, the word that we have arise in the Greek uh, verb tenses is passive. In other words, it's not something that he was able to do. He is supernaturally lifted up. The miracle takes place 
purely because of God's grace. There's not faith at this point in that individual to suddenly do something that affects his healing. He is miraculously lifted up. And it's incredible, again, this is an individual, we don't know necessarily how long this this predicament, um, but uh, his muscles, the muscle tone, the, the, the neuro pathways to his brain, all had to be repaired in an instant to be able to stand and support his weight. I mean, you know what it's like. If you have a uh, an injury or whatever and you're not able to, to walk or move for a period of time, your muscles very quickly start to atrophy. This individual had been in this condition a long period of time and suddenly... It's a complete healing. It really is an incredible, miraculous event. And suddenly this individual finds himself standing up. And then he takes up this bed. Doesn't go thy way into that house. It's kind of that, again, it's the, the go is the active sense of the verb. It's to go and to keep going. You know, and it's, well, we, we carry on. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it of this fashion. Peter thinking to himself at this point, I'm so glad I didn't tell them to get down off the roof. I can, I can repair that, but that was incredible. And, and young Mark now listening to these things, and he carries on. Mark is kind of engaged in this, and he's kind of like wants us to be there with him. Because verse 13, and he went forth again by the seaside. It's almost as if we are actually there following as Mark's recounting this for us. He doesn't stop and, and, and spend time unpacking that and looking at the theological implications. It's just there. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted under him, and he taught them. Interestingly, though, we're going to see all of the things that were being done in Capernaum was to no avail. Isn't it interesting, and we were talking a couple of weeks ago at our Bible study about how we can bring people to the Lord, particularly people that are close to us. How can we witness to them? How can we share the gospel? And one of the objections that people often put forward is, well, if I saw God do this, if I saw a miracle, if I saw that happen, well, these people in Capernaum saw all these things happen. And yet, incredibly, many didn't believe. We read in Matthew 11, Jesus later on would say, and thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. What a rebuke for this place that was witnessing these things. You'd have thought that the natural response after seeing these miracles would be to all turn and follow after Jesus. Jesus quite clearly says that though they saw these miracles, that wasn't enough for them. 
And it's the same with anybody that we try and witness to. They'll argue, well, if this happened, if the Lord did that, if God did that, if God is real, then why doesn't he fill in the blank? Truth is, even if God did those things, people wouldn't believe because the problem is not one of intellect, it's not one of evidence, it's not one of proof, it's one of the heart. And it doesn't matter how much evidence or proof we can present to somebody, the problem is still the heart. And that's the issue. That's what we've got to bring it down to every time. Yeah, it's easy to witness to somebody and share with them the fact that there is overwhelming evidence. But that's not enough. And then we read in verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi introduced to another one of the disciples now the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And do you see the theme here with the disciples, the calling of these disciples? Jesus effectively is saying, I want you to give up everything and follow me. And Matthew's got a pretty good job. The, the tax collectors would typically work is they would work on a kind of commission basis. They would be collecting taxes for Rome. And there was various types of taxes that were collected from the people. When you had an individual like Levi here, Matthew, as we're going to find he's named, they would take collect the taxes, the taxes from the public, and they were therefore named publicans. That's where that name comes from collected the taxes from the public. And, of course, if they were able to get a little bit more out of the people, they could keep that. That was theirs. So this potentially could be a very lucrative business he was in. Matthew, we know, was a Jew from Israel. He'd become so disillusioned because of the religious hierarchy, because of the, the way things were. He had a great understanding of, of the Torah, of the Tanakh, the Old Testament as, as we know it. Because in his gospel, he quotes frequently from the Old Testament and presents Jesus as the Messiah. He presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah. But here we first see him. Jesus says, follow me. And finally he sees someone who is genuine. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel? He said, I am the true vine. The word true is effectively genuine. Jesus said, I am the genuine vine. And we have that, that, that ability, generally speaking, to, to spot that which is true and that which is false, that which is genuine. When we, when we find something that's genuine, normally we see it, we understand it, we recognize it for what it is. Matthew's certainly doing so here. You know, there's, there's three vines spoken of in Scripture. Israel are spoken of as a vine. And the task that God had for them was to be a witness and to lead men to God. They failed. They failed terribly. They became such a, an unregenerate plant, as we're told in Scripture, that actually they became a laughingstock. And people even questioned their God because of their actions. There's another vine that we read about in Revelation, the vine of the earth. It's another vine that promises to lead people to God, but it leads people to a false God. 
it stems from Babylon. It becomes the, the source of all idolatry and everything else in the world and all false religion, offering a path to God. But it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't lead people to God. And so we've got, on one hand, Israel who failed. We've got this false vine that can't ever lead people to God. And Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I am the true vine. I'm the genuine vine. And to Matthew, he says, follow me. And we told he arose and followed him. Just seemingly, I mean, these Roman guards, he would have had Roman guards stationed with him. To protect Rome's money, to stop anybody else coming and trying to make off with the money that Matthew was collecting. It belonged to Rome, effectively. So he'd have had centurions. And this is why, again, in, Mark's, in, in Matthew's gospel, he gives us details of the, the tomb and of the centurions of the, the armed guard that were there. This elite Roman guard. That Mark is the, so Matthew is the only one that records those details. Why? Because he'd have known these characters. Matthew gets first-hand information about the events that take place about the angel coming down, the stone being moved, about that conversation with Pilate and with the Jewish priests, about keeping it quiet. Matthew records that. Why? Because he knew these people. And we read in verse 15, it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, see straight away, Jesus goes to this man's house. And we read many publicans his colleagues, people that were in the business with him. Other tax collectors, a notorious group of people here. I like the way that Peter effectively, Mark recording this, but Peter just kind of puts it to us that many publicans and sinners, <laughs> tax collectors and sinners, they're just all one and the same, sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. At this point, we've only had four of them specifically called. Now Matthew being called here. For there were many, we're told, that followed him. Now we are, we, we later find that there was a number that followed Jesus that came to the crunch and they followed him no more. And then later on in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus will ask Peter, who do you say? Will you go away also? Effectively. And Peter says, well, where could we go? You are the only one that has the words of eternal life. But for now, this multitude, these people that are following Jesus, some following out of real love and sincerity, like Peter, Andrew, James and John, like Matthew, others just following out of curiosity. And isn't that the way it is? That some people follow Jesus because they love him. Other follows other people follow him because they're curious. I mean, you can't deny he's an interesting character. And there's a lot of people that follow him because they think, well, I wonder what I'll get out of this. But when it comes to the challenge, many of those will abandon and leave him. I've said all this a moment ago about Matthew, I'll leave it in the notes for you. Just abandoning his career, following after Jesus now. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with these publicans, public tax collectors and sinners, Matthew again, just, I love this, three times we have it, yeah. Publicans and sinners, just the tax collectors are just the worst of the worst, he says. I'm sure he became good friends with Matthew, but. And they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks 
with publicans and sinners. Clearly they're saying this in earshot of Jesus. Trying to provoke, looking for reaction. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician. Are they that are sick? I came not to call the righteous the sinners to repentance. What Jesus means, of course, is that he, he, he came not to call those who are righteous in their own eyes as self-righteous, the people that think they've got it all, all together. But those that want to turn to him, those that will be willing to repent, that recognize their sinners. And the problem is, again, with any attempt to evangelize anyone, that if people think they have got it right, if they think they are righteous, if they think they're a good person, they're never going to respond to the gospel. We have to help people see that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that does good, no, not one, we're told, Paul tells us in Romans. And this is the challenge, because how do we convince people that they are not righteous? Some people get so offended if we tell them they're not a good person. You know, and I I do find it bizarre in the extreme that a world that by and large will tell us that there is no God will then get upset when we call them sinners. If there is no God, there is no uh, no such thing as sin. So why are they concerned that they're being called something that they say doesn't even exist? Well, of course, it be, the reality is that the conscience bears witness. And they know. They may deny God exists. They may say, no God, Psalm 14. Fall has said in his heart, no God. Not there, it's translated, there is no God. But they're not saying, I don't believe God exists. What they're saying is, I don't want God. No, it's... It's not the the self-righteous that will respond. It's those that recognize their need for a savior. And it's it's often the case that when people are in predicaments, you know, whatever that is, there's so many different ways this can come about in people's lives. It's when people are broken, when people come to that place of recognizing their own weakness, that they'll cry out to God. And Jesus said, they're the ones, ones ones that are willing to admit their own weakness are the ones that can be saved. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they came to him unto him. And why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is interesting because Jesus then says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then they shall fast in those days. Jesus speaks of a time coming when he will be taken away from his disciples. And he says at that point, that will be the time that my disciples will fast. That's the the time we're living in. That's the days we live in. Now is a good time to fast. Now is a good time to be in prayer, to be close to God. Let me just again clarify the whole purpose of fasting. Fasting is not going on hunger strike to get God to do something you want him to do. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is not giving up something that you shouldn't have been doing anyway. Not cutting out something that 
actually you didn't need in the first place. It amuses me when people get to Lent, as they call it, this thing the Catholic Church has. And they'll typically give up something that they didn't really care about in the first place, or they'll stop doing something they shouldn't have done, and they think that's something that deserves some sort of blessing from God. Fasting is about being close to God. Do you remember when Jesus went up the mountain, he's fasting and praying, he comes down and he's confronted with this demoniac and he heals them and the the people say, or the Father, I think it says, you know, why couldn't the disciples cast them out? And Jesus says, because this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I don't believe Jesus had been up in the mountain praying and fasting for that situation. He had just been praying and fasting. Why? To be close to God. To be in tune with his heavenly Father to be spiritually connected. So when he comes down from the mountain and he's confronted with this situation, he's so full of the Spirit of God, immediately he knows what to do and how to do it. That's why we fast. Fasting isn't about, again, trying to convince God to do what you're asking him to do. It's not a way of showing sincerity to God. Lord, if I fast, you'll see that I'm really serious about this. I really, really, really want it. It's like a child that promises to be really good three days before their birthday. You know, that, that's not what, what's going on with fasting. Fasting is about us cutting out the things of the world, the things of the flesh, so that we can be closer to Jesus, so that we can be more intimate with him, so that we can hear his heart, know his will for us. And then when we step out from that time of fasting, we're ready for whatever would come. We see things through spiritual eyes. We respond in a spiritual way. The problem is very quickly we, we kind of fall back into the ways of the world. That's why we regularly need to be putting ourselves in positions like this. Jesus went on and said, No man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece, the fill that taketh uh, away from the old, and the rent is made worse. Very practical statement no man putteth new wine in old bottles else the new wine does burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred but new wine must be put into new bottles he's just saying that he's doing something new it wasn't what john's disciples had done it wasn't what the pharisees the sadducees the jewish leadership had done there's something brand new that jesus was doing here verse 23 it came to pass that when he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. Now notice this, this, this Jewish leadership group that's come down and now following him. They're kind of stalking him. No pun intended with the field of corn stalks. But they're just following after Jesus, trying to look for some area where they can trip him up. Into past, he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day and his disciples, uh, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. They're just taking the picking the bits out so they can nibble. And the Pharisees suddenly arrive, watching from a distance, suddenly they're there in front of the men. And they said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Because they're saying they're harvesting. It's a Sabbath day. It's not lawful to harvest on the Sabbath day. Such silly arguments they present. And Jesus responds, says, he said unto them, have you never read what David did when he had need and hungered? He and they that were with him, speaking of the time that David fled from Saul and had gone to 
forget the name of the place now, the place where the priest dwelt. But they, when they get there, there's no food apart from the showbread. And so David says, that'll do, I'll eat that. It's holy bread. Nobody was supposed to touch it, but there was a need, there was a practical need. Now he went into the house of God in the days of Abithar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, again, just throwing that back at these, these Jews. Well, how do you explain that from your law? He says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. There's a really important principle that, that, that's there. And that is simply that the law is good. The law gives good instruction. There's, of course, the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law here as well implied. You know, all the laws that, that God gave in the Old Testament, there's broken down into 613 commandments by the Jews. You know, all of those things were given for a reason. Every single one of them. The dietary laws, they, they, were made, they made sense. So much so that the Jews typically through history have endured, enjoyed a better quality of life and they've not been susceptible to those typical diseases that the Gentiles have fallen foul to. There's so many other things as well. Now, all those laws are there for a reason. And we are not under the law, but as Gentiles, as believers, as servants of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that the law is still Scripture. There's a lot of good advice there. Again, the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Sorry, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. We'll leave it there for this week. You just imagine Mark just kind of excited. It's like, yes, he got one over on them. You know, and just again, just getting this information from Peter. And then it's like, then, then what happened? Well, well, we'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, just thank you for this account that Mark has given us. Thank you, Lord, for his passion, his enthusiasm, and excitement to record these things as he does. Lord, in such a fast-paced, moving way, Lord, to help us to try and appreciate just how incredible it was to, to follow you, to see you doing these things. And yet, Lord, we have that privilege too, to see you work in, in our midst, in our lives. The Lord, you've come and you've dwelt in our house. The Lord, you may put us through difficult and uncomfortable situations that others may be brought to you through us. Lord, help us to have that faith in you. You are a healer. And you are the one that forgives sins. Father, help us to reach out to those who are so stubborn and hard-hearted, who think they are righteous, who think they are right, who don't recognize the sin in their own lives. Father, convict them through your spirit, we pray. Lord, particularly those that are close to us. Because, Lord, you came to call the sinners to repentance. And, Lord, we have so many in our families and in this town that need to hear that message. Lord, thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts and keep us, Lord, just so overwhelmed with who you are that just like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew 
We're happy to give up everything to follow after you. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's fellowship together over some teas and coffees and may God richly bless you through this week.